on Broadway for Sunday, August 5th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. And uh, we should also say that uh, you have something coming up on Tuesday night, August 7th, in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. There's going to be a reading of uh, your comedy Musicals without music. <laughs> well, well, you know, I've always thought about what happens to um, characters in musicals uh, in the scenes we don't see or after uh, the fact. I mean, for example, in Peter Pan, I often wonder why those boys aren't furious with Peter saying to him, you know, you knew those kids in London for two seconds and you gave them fairy dust to fly everywhere. We have to walk everywhere. Why don't you give us the fairy dust? <laughs> so it's all sort of scenes like that, a whole bunch of scenes like that. And Rob Schneider, who does uh, the wonderful uh, podcast Behind the Curtain, is directing. And uh, I look forward to seeing this first iteration of it. That's awesome. Is it uh, any bit inspired by something Rotten's a musical? No, not particularly, but I will I will say this. I learned something from Something Rotten, the musical, because uh, I noticed in the five times that I saw it, because I loved it, uh, that indeed um, the joke, I am what I am and what I am is an illusion, never got a laugh because there was no movie of it. So I've stuck to musicals that have either movies or videos, because I think that's what people know better than just the shows themselves. Oh, great. <laughs> so let us know next week uh, how it went. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So, we are in August, but remarkably, I'm feeling like this August is much busier than other previous August. Do you yeah. feel that way? Yeah, I agree entirely. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're going to start with uh, Peter jumping in the um, the Felicia Mobile and heading to Washington D.C. <laughs> to see Dave at Arena Stage. Peter, tell us what we think about this new musical. I love the movie, Dave. Uh, this is one uh, that's essentially a, um, a new take on The Prisoner of Zenda, where indeed um, Bill Mitchell is the president of the United States, but he doesn't like to go to every little function. So uh, he likes to hire a double to stead in his place. And at this point, he wants a double because he wants to have an affair with uh, his uh, one of his interns. And unfortunately, while he's doing that, um, he has a terrible stroke and is utterly incapacitated. Nobody knows how much longer he's going to live, but there's no question that he's not going to be able to fulfill a role. Well, um, Bob Alexander, who's chief of staff, thinks that uh, this may be an opportunity for him to ascend the throne because all he has to do is have this most recent double, Dave Kovic, uh, pretend to be the president now and forever, or at least for the immediate future. And uh, his plan is actually that um, eventually he will, uh, Bob will prove that the president, uh, vice president is um, on the take and doing shady things. And he figures that Dave will then put him as vice president and then he'll get rid of Dave and he'll be president. So um, it's, it's a very nice story because it doesn't work out the way that Bob Alexander wants it to. Once Dave has the power, he uses it for good. And uh, things turn out very well. Now, 
I'm going to mention Silk Stockings, which sounds uh, a little incongruous, I'll grant you. But Silk Stockings was a musical that started as tryouts only a few months after the McCarthy hearings. And it was the right show for the right time because it was about uh, – if you know Ninochka, the movie, it's a movie, a musical version of that. So in Ninochka, uh, you have a communist and you have an American and who will conquer whom? Well, the American conquers. So this was the right show at the right time. And boy, is this the right show for the right time. And of course, at the moment, it's in the right place in Washington, D.C. There were plenty of uh, knowing laughs at uh, the chicanery that goes on behind the scenes. So that's a very potent part of the show. And it does make Dave particularly relevant right now. That said, it's a wonderful music musical for its own sake. Now, I do believe that um, there's been an improvement that either or um, uh, and I'm not sure Tom, um, Thomas Meehan started writing the book and um, just about a year ago he died and Nelt Benjamin took over. So I don't know whose idea it was to change Dave's occupation before he becomes president. In the movie, he runs a temp agency. And yes, that's very good because he's very job conscious. And one of the things he wants to do in the movie is create more jobs. OK, that's terrific. But here he's a history teacher. And uh, for high schoolers. And what's really wonderful in the first scene, he says, anybody can become president. You know, that old line that's true that any American can become president is a little more complicated than that. But indeed, what does happen in this show is that anybody does become president. So I think that's very strong. One of the things I didn't like in the movie was the fact that here's this guy who disappears for a long time from his job. And nobody really notices. Um, he does have a one excuse, not a very good one at all, uh, as to why he's not there. But in uh, the musical, it's much better because he gets laid off as a history teacher. He doesn't have a job now. And that frees him up to take this new job. Um, so nobody really is missing him the way they would on a day-to-day -day basis at a regular job. So there have been a great number of improvements. Now, uh, the music, Tom Kitt, who, of course, we know from Next to Normal and perhaps even Freaky Friday, if it's shown up uh, in your uh, neighborhood, or you can watch the movie uh, this week on the Disney Channel. There is an actual movie of Freaky Friday with Tom Kitt's music. So uh, it doesn't sound anything like those other two shows. It really does sound like uh, a Golden Age Broadway musical. And there are a ton of patter songs, by the way. Now, if you have patter songs, you better have good lyrics. And you do have good lyrics here because Nell Benjamin is a first-rate lyricist. And she certainly has come through here wonderfully. So all that is uh, in terrific shape. Now, the guy who plays Dave, uh, Drew Geeling, um, who we may know from uh, Jersey Boys. Uh, he was in the cast for a long time. And he's really quite wonderful in playing both parts because you don't see much of Bill Mitchell, I'll grant you, but he has to have that stateliness and the gravitas, and he has that. Um, Dave is more – I don't want to say nebbish, even though I just did, but um, he's, he's an ordinary guy. You know, and he um, he has that everyman quality very well down pat. And what I mean by that in terms of everyman is there's a more good and um, substance in everyman than we might believe. And this is a story that um, I never get this quotation right, but it's Emily Dickinson had a line, something like, we never know how tall we are till we are called to rise. And this hmm. is what happens here, that he actually um, rises to the occasion and becomes this wonderful uh, leader. 
leader. So um, that's really quite, quite fine. Now, one of the problems in the movie was the fact that his wife hated him, not just for the infidelities, but because he wasn't doing the job that she expected him to do. She wasn't he wasn't certainly um, doing the best he could for the common man. And she wanted that from him and she expected that from him when she married him. So Sigourney Weaver in the movie was really quite terrific in putting on a brave face when she was with the public and telling him off like crazy when they're in private. So um, that's still in place here. And um, it uh, it's, it certainly is very strong to see this element in the show as well, because after all, we do, <laughs> as it's often been said, no matter who you are, your wife has opinions of you that um, nobody else has because, you know, she knows you inside out. So um, so really, it's it's very effective to see um, the, the dynamics between the, um, the husband and wife uh, going on here. So that's very strong as well. So uh, Douglas Sills is here playing Bo- uh, Bob Alexander and does a wonderful wonderful job because he's evil, but he doesn't come across as uh, totally evil. Uh, you know, it's not like he's rubbing his hands, you know, being that type of villain. Um, he's not melodramatic at all. So really, um, I do think we um, owe a lot to um, director Tina Landau, who um, has made it so slick. And that's a compliment. Uh, and it moves wonderfully and you never get tired of it. So um, I, I think this is a, a real um, winner. Now, I'm very interested to see when it moves to Broadway, and I'm sure it will because it's that good, and it is a hot ticket down there. <laughs> but, you know, um, it really fits the Krieger Theater at Arena Stage so beautifully because that's not a big stage. This show would really be ideal in the Booth Theater, but it's hard to make money with a musical at the Booth Theater, which only has 750 seats. But the way the set has been designed um, uh, as a, a, a drum where you uh, reveal half drum and and that's great for the oval office right um, I I, uh, I think it may have to be totally redesigned um, for for Broadway unless they're in a small theater which again as I say is hard to make money but I do hope it comes here I expect it to come here I expect it to do very well in the Tony nominations um, this season if it does come in this season so um, I I, I was very glad that um, it wasn't just putting on stage a movie and throwing in songs, that things were rethought and I feel improved. So I'm looking forward to seeing it again uh, somewhere between 41st and 54th Streets. I just looked it up and the movie came out, I guess, just before the Clinton presidency, which is interesting because I, I wanted to see the timeline because you mentioned that plot point about the affair. Sure, with the sure, sure. Yeah. 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 The movie suddenly is, um, what, 25 years old. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it took a while to get to the musical stage, but it has been worth waiting for. Well, there's so many. Uh, An American President's another great movie about the presidency. I agree. Oh, and, what a uh, musical that would make. I mean, when I, when I saw American President, I said, this is what the Irving Berlin, uh, Russell Krauss and Howard Lindsay uh, musical Mr. President should have been. I mean, that is such a smart property. And, um, you know, since Aaron Sorkin has been flirting with dealing yes, with the musical I was just going to say that. Yeah, you know, I really, um, I, don't, I don't know why this isn't the musical. Um, but Dave will beat him to it, apparently. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the uh, old, oldie but goodie, Watergate, you know? Yes. <laughs> with that, I think a great musical, you know? Yeah. 
and then the future musical about the impeachment of the president. Well, so, you know, I mean, we are at a time in history where half the nation would welcome Dave or Uber Pyle, for that matter, as president. But, you know, so, um, but, you, know you come away saying, Mr. We could use a man like David Kovic again. So, um, yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as you said, not half the nation is head over heels over our current president. But there oh, is oh. a musical on Broadway called Head Over Heels at the Hudson Theater. All three of us have gotten a chance to see it. So, Michael, why don't you get us started on this? Yes, this is the Go-Go's musical, uh, musical by the Go-Go's, uh, based, on, <laughs> based on the Arcadia, a 16th century play by Sir Philip Sidney, uh, conceived an original book by Jeff Whitty, uh, adapted by James Magruder. And th- those are some very important credits there because I think it points to, um, unfortunately, the, the major problem with this show. I, I enjoyed a lot of it. Very greatly, uh, but I think that it seemed very inconsistent in terms of tone, and it did seem like it was perhaps written by one person and then rewritten by another. Um, I uh, then that was unfortunate because when it was good, I thought it was really very delightful. But anyway, it's set in this in this kingdom, uh, you know, presumably the. 16th century, and there are all these characters, and as was common at the time, uh, um, as fans of Shakespeare know, there's a lot of uh, romantic intrigue and cross-dressing. so uh, more so in, in in this, I would say, than in any other uh, similar play or musical that we have seen. Um, the uh, But for example, the opening song, We Got the Beat, uh, which is uh, a very much an up-tune uh, production number. Lots of uh, great choreography by Spencer Liff. Um, but it's very confusing because in this case, uh, you would think it should be this delightful, uh, big up-dance number that really gets the audience going. But uh, rather confusingly, I think they're trying to say that in this case, the beat is not a good thing because all of the – uh, people in the kingdom are dancing to the same beat, and it doesn't give them a chance for terms for self-expression or gender expression uh, to express what their real uh, sexuality and genders may be. Um, so that seemed odd. That that seemed like a number that was really shoehorned in. It's as if the creative team said to them, "Well, it's this big up number, and so we've got to make it the opening number, and we've got to put all this choreography in." But we have to establish the fact that this. Uh, kingdom is very rigid and it doesn't allow for self-expression. So I thought that was a big mistake and that it took uh, the show, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes to recover from it. Then I found it started to get very funny and delightful and sweet. And the audience started to respond to it in a big way and really pretty much stayed with it until the end of the show when there again, suddenly there was a big shift in tone and and the show started to get very serious at the end. There's a, uh, the apparent, uh, killing of one of the major characters that casts a huge pall over the proceedings. And of course, you might say to yourself, well, it's got to probably turn out that this person is not really dead. But it takes a while um, for that to happen. So uh, it, um, I just felt like there was very uh, clunky turn to a much more serious 
tone at the end. And I understand why it was there, because you do have to, even in a, a very, very light comedy or a farcical comedy like this, you have to have emotional underpinnings for the characters or the audience doesn't care. But I, I just didn't think it was well done. Um, and that is too bad, because for the most part, uh, I, I, I think this could have been a, a real slam dunk and uh, a huge hit. Uh, if it just had been, if they hadn't had these apparent major problems in the gestation with one writer leaving and another one coming in. Um, directed by Michael Mayer, uh, cast, uh, as we have said about so many shows uh, in the past, it, the talent is on stage is almost never the problem, and it certainly isn't here. You've got... Jeremy Kushner as Basilius, um, who ha who I was reminded has one of the best voices on Broadway. I, I don't uh, I don't think we see or hear him as much as I would like to. Uh, certainly, I wish he would come back much more often. Uh, his wife, Genesia uh, Genesia is Rachel York, uh, Pamela Bonnie Milligan, Philoclea Alexandra Sosha. Demetis, Tom Allen Robbins, Mopsa, Taylor Iman Jones, Musidorus, Andrew Durand, um, excuse me, Andrew Durand, I want to say his name right. I, I, I just think he's great on stage and he really has a part that he can go to town with here. Uh, Pipio is Peppermint. And then the ensemble, we have Amber Ardolino, Ural Echezerata, Ari Groover, Tanya Haglin, Gregory Lyles, Samantha Polino, Justin Prescott, and Ricardo Azeas. Uh This is in the beautifully beautifully renovated Hudson Theater, which not only does it look great, but I noticed on this occasion, uh, for some reason I noticed it uh, this time more than in my previous visits, it's got a tremendous amount of leg room, <laughs> at least uh, for for the orchestra section or the part that I was sitting in. I, I So much so that I commented on it. This is something I particularly don't need so much uh, because of my height, but People who are larger and longer have longer legs are really going to appreciate it. Um, the comfort level and the sight lines there are, are fantastic, aside from how lovely the actual renovation looks. If you walk around and look at the the um, the just the, the way it's been appointed and the the, the the huge bar on the upper lobby level is is another wonderful place to hang out and and just really enjoy uh, how beautiful everything looks. And then if you go downstairs uh, to the restroom level, you'll find some memorabilia on the walls about the Titanic because the uh, original owner of the theater, uh, the, 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 the uh, husband of, of, of the owners, uh, he died in the Titanic, and then it was his wife's theater for many, many, many decades after that. So Head Over Heels, I understand, is not doing well at the box office. I'm sorry to hear that. I think that it could have been... Um, as I say, uh, a lot better and, and a lot better received, perhaps, if uh, they hadn't had that pro those problems with the gestation. Um, I uh, yeah, and I don't uh, I don't know how long it's going to be with us, but uh, we'll see. Uh, music supervision, orchestrations, and arrangements, by the way, by Tom Kitt, um, whom Peter just mentioned. So there's a lot of talent involved here, and I would say that uh, sometimes it hits, but a lot of it I would classify as a near miss. All right, Peter, what'd you think? Well, the one thing I want to say is that um, 
what what's really hard with uh, with a show is when you have character names that are so so unfamiliar and so mm. difficult. And boy, does this show do this! I mean, Musidorus, Basilius, uh, Damitas, Philoclea. I've not uh, noticed Michael had a problem pronouncing <laughs> yes. Nisia Genesia. I have no idea. But my point is, why make it hard for the audience? Um, given the fact that we have new music that is anachronistic to the period, why not have names that uh, may very well be anachronistic to the period, but would be easier for people to take on? I mean, after all, um, Antonia was a name that uh, was used in Greece um, during that period of time. Why not do that? Because we've heard the name Antonia. We know that name. Nicholas was a name that was even used at that time. Call your characters by these names and make it so much easier for the people. That's the real mistake here because we can't keep track of these characters when their names are so unfamiliar to us. So um, I'd, I'd like to see uh, them change their names uh, sooner rather than later. But yes, indeed, um, I don't know how much of the audience uh, that I was with on Wednesday afternoon was papered because, of course, the grosses have been quite, quite low. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know that um, these people who are sitting around me and having the time of their lives paid for their tickets. And there's a profound difference between the level of enjoyment you have when you haven't paid for your ticket and when you have. And when it's free, it's a treat, and you have a wonderful time, you know, and you forgive uh, a lot of things that you wouldn't if you said, I paid $169 for this, are you crazy? So I'm not sure that my audience's titanic reaction reaction to this show uh, was uh, one that they would have felt had they paid. And again, I don't know for sure. It, they may, every person in that audience may have paid top dollar for their seats. I have no idea. But I am a little suspicious that with a virtually full house, that uh, indeed it was a case that uh, people did pay and, and, and weren't um, getting free seats. All right. So uh, I'm going to disagree with Michael just a little bit. Um, I I really love the show, and that's not the part I disagree with with Michael. He liked it as well. Uh, I think that there is a tremendous failure in marketing on this show. I, I think this show is really wonderful. I think it, it could run along the same lines of a Kinky Boots. It could run along the same lines of a Something Rotten where they don't have – uh, huge stars outside of the uh, Broadway names. They don't have you know, Hollywood names in this thing, but I think that they've been marketing it as, you know, uh, Michael introduced it as the Go-Go show. It, it's not really the Go-Go show. It's a, uses the Go-Go's musical, but, mm. you know, Jeff Witte, it, you know, came up with this idea and adapted it and wrote the book and and it's based on our, the Arcadia and... I think that they have done a tremendous disservice in the marketing department uh, to Head Over Heels. I think this could run for many years. Uh, a lot of fun, tremendous talent up on that stage. It's beautiful. The theater is wonderful. I think it's got all the elements there, and the marketing people fail to tell the audience what is happening on stage here. And we are seeing... Um, we are seeing... Uh, a, a struggle at the box office, as Peter mentioned, with Head Over Heels, and it's hard to know if we're going to uh, continue to see it much past the fall. Uh, I'd expect that it at least will will run there. Um, but, you know, it could be along the lines of um, inexperienced producing. 
they they have not discounted tickets uh, to the show tremendously. They might be papering, but the uh, the mm. grosses that were the grosses that were last week were that Head Over Heels was had very low attendance on the non weekend nights, and that. Um, and that this could be uh, a, a lack of experience in producing, and also the uh, Ambassador Theater Group that owns the Hudson Theater, um, uh, they seem to be very much along the lines of producing, uh, along the lines of how London shows are produced. Did you guys notice that? You know, it's all about, um, it, it it has a very different feel when walking into the Hudson Theater. It's almost like you're walking into a West End show with mm-hmm. uh, the way in which they run uh, either the concessions and the bar and the ushers and things like that. It's got a very different feel than a traditional Broadway theater. Maybe that's just me. Uh, but again, I love this show. I encourage everybody to go and uh, go and check it out because I think you're going to have a very good time and there's some good stuff happening up on stage. It's very funny. And um, I hope that it hangs on. Well, interestingly enough, I, I, di- I, dis- I agree with all of that, uh, James. I, I don't disagree with any of that. I think it, the situation is maybe that it's difficult uh, to convey in, in a few words or images what the show is. Maybe that's yes. – uh-huh. part I of the agree, problem. Yeah. And interestingly enough, uh, this coming week, I am going to see a musical version of Twelfth Night that is being done uh, at, the at, park. At, at, at the Delacorte. And this is not the first musical version of Twelfth Night, but I think if you uh, if you say to uh, you know to most people, well, I'm going to see a, a musical version of Twelfth Night with, uh, with you know with pop present day pop music, then you, they've got a pretty clear idea of what it is. But in this case, the fact that you're dealing with a what is now an obscure 16th century play, not by Shakespeare, I think uh, that was part of the challenge for them. And maybe perhaps they didn't meet it uh, as well as they could have, which is, I think, what you're saying. All right. So that is Head Over Heels at the Hudson Theater. Uh, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Next up, we have uh, Michael and Peter got to see Straight White Men over at the Hayes Theater. So, uh, Peter, why don't you get us started on this? Well, um, so here we are at the uh, Hayes. And what you'll notice when you see the proscenium arch is that it's been framed. And at the bottom, there's even a little plaque that says Straight White Men. Why do I mention this? Because in in essence, we're led to believe that we're looking at a real picture portrait of uh, straight white men. And we do get four of them. Uh, We have the father and we have his three grown sons and it's Christmas Eve and it's time to get together. Now, usually in situations like this, where we see families getting together at Christmas, it's all about fighting. Um, and there's fighting in this one, too. First off, there's the standard type of fighting that some straight white men do, the, the roughhousing, you know, the hitting each other on the shoulders or slapping each other on the gluteus maximus, all that kind of stuff. Yes, there's a lot of that among the three brothers. Uh, but more to the point, uh, the conversation here is where the fighting is really going to occur. And that is because one of the brothers 
is not doing well in the world. Now, one of his brothers is uh, as uh, a very successful um, banker, hedge fund guy, one of those uh, Wall Street types who's doing extraordinarily well. The other one is a novelist who you wouldn't expect to do well, but he is. He's a best-selling novelist, and so he's in good shape too. But it's the other brother who's not in good shape, who has in fact moved home with his father, ostensibly to take care of him. This happens a lot in life. The people, um, younger people, go back home and claim that they're taking care of their father. This guy, father doesn't need any taking care of. He's fine. There's nothing um, that's problematic with him whatsoever. Uh, he's not even that old. So, um, so really what we have here is a kid that needs his father more than the father needs him. So what happens is, is that one of the brothers um, is really very intent on straightening out the um, the brother who's not doing well, while the other brother says, fine, he's all right, he's all right. Now, a lot of this comes down to the idea of white privilege, and there's a lot of talk about white privilege in this play, believe me when I tell you. So it goes on and on and on about is it a case where the, the brother who's not achieving is doing so because he wants to give a chance to those people who um, need the jobs? Uh, this is actually an issue, and I'm not sure it's a terribly convincing one. Uh, nevertheless, the play um, certainly works in the vantage point of the cast, which is really quite good. Now, um, we really have to be impressed uh, tremendously, uh, considering the fact that there was uh, there was a cast replacement um, and then a second cast replacement for the same role. There was a lot of um, going on here that um, was, was tremendously problematic. Um, I don't know what the issue was. We, of course, heard that it was that famous statement that um, – um, <laughs> artistic differences, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, Stephen Payne has taken over the role, uh, and he's quite, quite good as this crusty guy. Uh, but they're all good. Uh, Josh Charles, Arnie Hammer, and Paul Schneider are excellent as the sons. Um, and Paul Schneider is very good as the um, son who's having the, the problems in life. So... Um, a couple of notes, though, here. There, for some reason, and I have no idea why, especially in an era where they try to keep down expenses, there are two transsexuals who occasionally um, – who start the show by talking to us a bit and uh, then come on and watch people change the set slightly when things have to be moved here or there. Um, the, the set is the same throughout, but, I mean, there are, there are tables have to be moved or junk has to be cleared, that type of thing. And uh, they just watch them do it. And I have to say, that um, I don't think they added much to the show. Frankly, I don't think they added anything to the show, but that's another story. But mm. anyway, um, uh, I, if you are going, if you're going to a matinee, I urge you to get there at 2.06. And if you're <laughs> going to uh, an evening performance, get there at 8.06 or 7.06. Why am I saying this? Well, shows traditionally don't begin till seven past. But more to the point, there is such loud, oppressive, horrifying rock music at the decibel um, screeching levels that you will lose some of your hearing. So um, uh, that's that to me is one of the big liabilities of the play. But, you know, uh, this is, uh, uh, I believe, a Broadway debut for young Jean Lee, um, a, a woman playwright who's done very good at capturing men uh, and who they are and what they are. So um, it's a solid work. It's uh, I don't say I wouldn't say it's a must see, but it is a solid uh, production of uh, a play that is very thought provoking. All right, Michael, what did you think? Well, I was going to start my comments with a question, but I don't think uh, just from what Peter said that maybe he can answer it. This play was 
first done or uh, well was done oh, right. just four years ago at the mm-hmm. public theater. I'm taking I'm taking it you did not see it then. I did not. No, and I don't know why. I mean, I actually, when I saw that it was done before, I checked the dates and I looked at my book where I keep all my records and no, and it didn't, it wasn't like after 20 minutes I said, oh yeah, 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 I remember this one. No, I don't think I saw it. Well, the reason I ask is because I was going to ask if perhaps these person in charge one and two people uh, were added since then as a, as a kind of a response to the current uh, good point. Yeah. tremendous interest uh, in uh, gender fluidity and transsexuals, mm-hmm. etc., et uh, because they do – certainly seem completely outside of the play. Uh, interestingly enough, um, I had heard this that this uh, was happening before. Uh, if you do show up and get assaulted by that <laughs> that horribly loud, you didn't like it either. possibly yeah. possibly damaging uh, yeah. <laughs> level of rock music. Um, Kate Bornstein, Bornstein, excuse me, and uh, I think perhaps the other person, Ty Defoe, are walking around the theater. And uh, if you go uh, go up to them, or uh, it, as it happens in our case, we were standing in the in the outer lobby trying to uh, stay out of the direct assault of the music. And Kate Bornstein came up to us and. Uh, said, are you guys standing out here because of the music? And we said, yes. And she said, uh, well, said, well, I can give you earplugs. And uh, and uh, and then, you know, once the show starts, the music will stop and we will give you the very, very good reason why the playwright uh, felt it necessary to include this very loud music. And I said, I'm sure the playwright thinks that she has a very good reason for including the very loud music. <laughs> and uh, Kate didn't seem to like that remark. But anyway, I, I I don't I don't see the point of assaulting an audience like that. I think it's ridiculous. Um, so I had I was in a bad mood from the beginning. Uh, once it started, uh, once the the introductory scene with person in charge one and two was over, I thought there were some interesting uh, and amusing points made in the script itself. Uh, I thought that the acting was was very good. It seems, uh, interestingly enough, uh, for me in his bio, that this might be Army Hammer's, well, I don't know if it's his stage debut, but if it, he does seem to have, well, he doesn't list um, uh, anything else that uh, looks like stage work to me. Whereas, um, Josh Charles has quite a quite a lot of stage work, but uh, I thought that Army that they both were very good, and Army Hammer seemed very natural for someone with with limited or no stage experience. And uh, yes, that uh, fellow who uh, Stephen Payne, who took over the role of the father, he did a wonderful job. I also thought he was perfect in terms of uh, type and voice. And that, that I don't know, that may be a first because as I re- recall, three people were announced for that role within the space of one week uh, because Tom Skerritt wasn't originally announced and then he was gone due to, I don't remember if it said artistic differences or personal reasons or whatever, but he, uh, uh, I'll, I'll go with what Peter said. And so then he was out. And I, I really, <laughs> I think that's what I remember, but that yeah. doesn't make it true. Anyway, no, go on. No, yeah. Neither do I. Sorry. <laughs> and then Dennis Arndt was announced uh, to take over and the uh, first preview uh, was, uh, 
was delayed by one day uh, in order to give him a chance to learn the role. But then he, if I understand correctly, Dennis Sarn never actually wound up performing. And then uh, at some point, Stephen Payne, who was the understudy, um, took was was given the role <laughs> and took it over and, and did a very good job with it. Um, so uh, a lot of Soros apparently with this production also, at least on that level. And uh, did we mention um, – Matt is Paul Schneider. I, I thought he he did a uh, a really good job. There, there's uh, not much to the play uh, when you get right down to it. If you read, uh, if the if you were to read the lines of it uh, with no with no business, I think it would probably maybe only last about forty five minutes because after the introductory section, uh, then there's the the scenes in the you know in the in the apartment or in the home. Uh, in the family room of, of this home in the Midwest. And uh, there's talk, but there's a lot of business. At one point, somebody spills a bowl of munchies, then cleans it up, and that takes a long time. There's a lot of uh, rough housing, as if these guys were uh, frat boys. There's dancing, and uh, it, it seems like a really uh, – a friend of mine described it as really not adding up to a lot, and I would agree with that. I think there are some good points, but I don't I don't know if there were enough to put this play on Broadway uh, with – interestingly enough, I would say maybe two B-level stars, not A-level. I don't think I would describe Army Hammer or, or Josh Charles as A-level in terms of uh, you know, fame and notoriety. Certainly, uh, as far as talent, they're they're definitely a level. So it's an odd it's an odd item uh, on Broadway. And uh, I, uh, the, the, for what it's worth, the audience seemed to respond to it big time. Uh, jokes, you know, comments, remarks that I thought were mildly amusing were getting huge laughs, which uh, seems to be the thing. And in, in response to Broadway shows now, people wanted prove how much they're having a good time. And so this raucous, raucous laughter uh, out of all proportion to what's being done, in my opinion. Uh, so I didn't uh, mind it once I I stopped being uh, orally assaulted, A-U-R-A-L-L-Y, assaulted by that music at the beginning. But I also didn't think that uh, there was really much point to it. All right. So um, that's Straight White Men. Uh, next up in our review section, Michael and I got a chance to see Smokey Joe's Cafe, which is the Songs of Lieber and Stoller. Uh, that's playing off-Broadway at Stage 42. So uh, why don't I start on this one and uh, start by saying that there is an amazing wealth of talent on that stage. Just the voices are un- undeniably wonderful. Um, this is not my favorite show. I'm not thrilled mm. about the, uh, you know, uh, how many songs are in this thing? Is it 40? 40. 40 some odd songs. And you don't really get to hear the beginning, middle and end of the songs. They're all run into each other like a car wreck. Uh, and so I think there's a lot to be said for, having a complete song from start to finish. I mean, you do hear a handful of them from start to finish, but a lot of them are are the most popular bridge of the song to get the audience into it. Uh, it's a wonderful concert, absolutely wonderful concert, uh, but as, as far as being a, a musical, a Broadway musical, I, I don't think that this is the right venue for it. Um, 
and these people that are in it are just, you know, if you do go to this show and you do love the music of Lieber and Stoller, you're going to have a great time because these people on stage are just amazing. But this is not really my type of show. Well, this, yeah, I mean, this show, is, as I'm sure most of our listeners know, had a five-year run on Broadway beginning in 1995. Now it's uh, technically off-Broadway at stage 42, formerly called The Little Schubert. Uh, and I believe this is still a theater that it has 499 seats, which makes it uh, one less than uh, the minimum requirement for Broadway. And it seems... Uh, that it's going to stay that way uh, f- for a while. It, that theater has a this theater has a very troubled history as far as not being able to ever book a hit. I don't know if this show is going to change that. Although, yes, uh, certainly that the talent level on stage and off, uh, directed and choreographed by Joshua Bergas, who does this dang up uh, a, a bang up job with this uh, in in both. Areas. Uh, I I I was thinking in, initially of referring to Smokey Joe's as a uh, seminal uh, jukebox musical, but I, it's it's really not. I, I guess it's more of a review. Uh, some of the songs have some story and theatrical content. Many of them don't. Uh, it, there's not really. Um, uh, any attempt at a through line between the, the the characters who are just hanging around this cafe or this this music club and singing and dancing these songs, um, they there really are uh, some amazing numbers though. Uh, Lieber and Stoller are responsible for hits such as Fools Fall in Love, Dance with Me, Kansas City, Jailhouse Rock, Charlie Brown on Broadway. And stand by me, and that's only uh, a, a, you know. A, as we mentioned, there are forty songs or forty parts of songs, at least. Uh, it, it's quite an amazing output. It's not surprising, I think, that the show re- ran originally for five years. I never saw it, <laughs> the original production, uh, but there is a video of it, although not with the original cast. And I think you can still obtain that if you want to look at what uh, that. Uh, original, very long-running, famous production of Smokey Joe's Cafe was like. Um, this one, by the way, has uh, – they apparently have switched out and switched in some so- some songs. Uh, one that I noticed is a song that I remember from my childhood called Along Came Jones, uh, which is a story song. So uh, it's uh, funny that the – strange that that wasn't in there from the beginning but it is now and it's acted out it's a it's a kind of a western ballad kind of a song and and i thought it was very amusing the cast uh Dwayne cooper emma diggerstedt john edwards dion d figgins nicole vanessa ortiz kyle taylor parker J- jelani remy max sangerman and alicia umfris who uh did such a wonderful job as the uh female cab driver in on the town and it's great to have her back on stage i really enjoy her a lot along with everyone else uh i would say it's also uh one of the hardest working casts in terms of uh singing all those songs without a break most of them are on stage uh for most of the proceedings very little downtime and uh lots of of very um spirited energetic choreography by joshua bergas uh, especially i think for the for the men who uh 
sometimes function as sort of a, a doo-wop group within the uh, within the larger proceedings. So it's tremendously entertaining. And if you like these songs, uh, I would hightail it over to Stage 42 to see this show. I, I don't think uh, that there's any criticism of the production other than what you know how one responds to this kind of a show to begin with so uh, uh Peter, you're um, singing yeah, this week I'm, right yeah i'm going tonight but the thing i want to talk about is the history of this show and that is when it opened in 1995 i called it putrid mm-hmm. now the reason i did was because I thought we were going in and we were going to see an actual story about Lieber and Stoller. What mm. what an interesting musical that would be if indeed we had these two white guys writing this black music. And uh, mm. you know, how do how do people react when they heard this music? Um, I'm talking about recording executives. Gee, let's get these black kids in there, and then the white kids walk in. I mean, I, I found that very interesting. I thought that was what we were going to see. And when it just turned out to be one song after another, I was uh, infuriated. So I called it putrid, and as a result. Richard Frankels, the show's producer, general manager, wrote me, and um, and I quote, putrid, he asked, it smells and repulses. Like what? Like a rotting animal, a body's in a ditch? It's an <laughs> entertainment worked on for two years by people who spend their lives in rehearsal halls and theaters trying to get this whole thing right. I have read your reviews over the years with interest and have never had any reason to regard you as anything other than a professional writer who dignifies his subject. That was really out of line. Okay, so I wrote back and I said, look, you've produced Driving Miss Daisy, Frankie and Johnny, The Cocktail Hour, Marvin's Room, Jeffrey, Angels in America. What are you doing producing something as artistically inferior as this review? In your future Playbill bios, I predicted, you won't even mention that you did Smokey Joe's Cafe. <laughs> well, when it hit a thousand performances, <laughs> I wrote uh, a, an article for Playbill saying that, uh, look, I was wrong. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> that's it. You know, I mean, it, obviously, there's a, a, a market for this show. And um, and Frankel wrote me back and said, I've never seen anything like this in my life that a critic actually is willing to say I made a mistake. But yes, I did make a mistake in the sense that this was an audience pleaser. You know, of course, this was a terrible season, you may recall, 1995, um, Mm. because remember that year for the Tonys, the nominees for Best Musical are Smokey Joe's Cafe, Sunset Boulevard. And the winner is, I mean, there were two nominees. That was <laughs> it. That was it. So, you know, I'm, uh, it, it greatly disappointed me originally. Since then, I have seen it twice, and I've made my peace with it. I mean, yes, it is a review. And uh, maybe if it were about the two guys, um, yeah, I have an interesting setup where they go into the office and they're, people are astonished they're not black. But what happens then? You know, so um, <laughs> you can't really fight uh, when the public really embraces something. And this this was a very good show at the time because here baby boomers were just coming into going into the theater and they wanted to relive their youth and this allowed them to do it. Uh, more to the point, um, they were they were in trouble because the reviews weren't so hot. They weren't terrible, but they weren't so hot. I mean, um, the Times and I quote said a strangely homogenized tribute to one of popular music's most protean songwriting teams. Well, that doesn't make you get on the phone and call Telecharge. I mean, you know, but what had happened was 
they opened the Tony Awards that year, and they had this very dynamic opening with the with the guys who were all walking down Broadway, um, mm. save the neon lights of Brighton Broadway, and they come to the theater. And you remember that <laughs> even if people don't watch much of the Tony Awards, they tend to watch them at the beginning. Um, so they had really great impact, and that's really what turned it around. So anyway, here it is back, and in a strange way, I'm looking forward to revisiting it tonight, <laughs> especially with Alicia Humphreys, because um, what I decided to do recently. I'm going to listen to every original cast album from the 40s in chronological order. And last night was actually on the town. And I still believe that her rendition of I Can Cook 2 is the best I've ever heard. Now, to be fair to Nancy Walker, who originated the part, when she did do the recording, it wasn't until 1960, um, 14 years after the fact, and she wasn't a young girl anymore. So that might have something to do. And she's fine. She's fine. Don't misunderstand me. But I think Alicia Humphreys does the best uh, rendition I've ever heard of I Can Cook Too. And I won't be surprised if she does the best rendition of one of these Lieber Stola songs when I see her tonight. Well, that musical that you described that this could have been uh, if they had written it about Lieber and Stoller, about white people writing <laughs> uh, music for black audiences, it sounds like a little bit of that uh, was maybe sort of uh, what became Memphis. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, but, not exactly, but, the, oh, but no, no, yeah. no. But yeah, yeah, it's cut from the same bolt of cloth. Yes, I agree. And look how good that did. That won the Tony. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, do we think that Richard Frankel sent the New York Times uh, a note about their review of this revival? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I'm going to say I don't think so. <laughs> So I'm referring to uh, the Times review uh, uh, was perceived as taking to task uh, some body shaming and Alicia Umphress as being uh, uh, overweight. And uh, it was uh, the reaction from the Broadway community was swift and furious about that being totally out of bounds for a reviewer. And the reviewer... um, uh, did not make an apology, which um, which not was not quite. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Whereas and whereas another, Brantley, yeah, yes, yeah. So uh, Ben Brantley w- reviewed Head Over Heels uh, a couple of days later, and in the Head Over Heels um, review, Brantley made a reference to peppermint uh, and a few other things in the review, and the and the Broadway community. Uh, so uh, um, aware of what was happening in the um, in the Smokey Joe's review, reacted heavily to Brantley's review, and Brantley came out and, re- and apologized immediately and explained that it was a reference to something in the show, and but uh, you know released mm. a, a pretty lengthy apology about uh, the choice of words that he made in his Head Over Heels review. So uh, it was interesting that that Frankel uh, had written you a note at that point. Mm. <laughs> All right. Next up, we have uh, The House That Will Not Stand. Peter and I got a chance to see that down at New York Theater Workshop. Peter, why don't you tell us about this? 
Well, this is a new adaptation of one of my favorite plays of all time, and that is The House of Bernada Alba by Federico Garcia Lorca. And um, it was done in the 30s before he mysteriously, well, bad things happened to him. Let's just leave it at that. Mm. Um, Because he was really writing about the repressive Spanish government in which he was living. But he did it metaphorically by having Bernada Alba have five daughters, and boy, does she rule with an iron fist, to say the least. Okay. Um... I was lucky enough to see Glenda Jackson do this in London uh, some decades ago, and what will always stay with me is when one of the daughters gets engaged, um, somebody comes over and says, oh, let me see your ring, and they have to go over to Glenda Jackson, Bernada Alba, who is wearing the ring as a pendant. I mean, that's how much control she has. The girl can't even wear her own engagement ring. The mother holds the engagement ring. My God. So anyway, um, Marcus Gardley, who's certainly one of our more ambitious playwrights, uh, decided to do his own take on it and set it in New Orleans. And so we have now Beatrice, uh, I'm sorry, Beatrice Albans um, and we have uh, three of the daughters on tap, and we also have Makita, who's the um, the maid. And uh, we're in pre-Civil War time, so she's not just the maid. She's the slave. And um, so she doesn't have quite the power that the maid does in Bernada Alba, who's the only person who dares to call Bernada Alba Bernada. Um, but uh, what what happens here is very dynamic and it is true to the play and it has also an added element of voodoo because we are in New Orleans and um, that's a, something that uh, has a time-wanted tradition down there. So that happens as well. Terrific production, wonderfully done by Liliana Blaine Cruz and wonderfully acted by Linda Gravatt, one of my favorite people as um, Beatrice. Harriet D. Foy is wonderful as the maid, um, but also the three daughters, um, terrifically uh, performed by Nedra McClyde, uh, Juliana Canfield, and Janice Abbott Pratt. There's also a crazy relative who shows up as well. Michelle Wilson is very good um, as her, and um, Marie Thomas is excellent as uh, the busybody neighbor. Frankly, I think this play is worth the price of admission for two lines, one involving Jesus, I'm not going to give it away, and another one involving a three-legged dog, I'm not going to give it away. But you can tell from just that that this guy is really a writer – And um, if you enjoyed his off-Broadway plays that he has had before, and one of them was tremendously um, controversial, but um, he also did a very good job with – X uh, or Betty Shabazz versus The Nation um, some time ago. So this is um, a, a fine playwright, and he um, has really done a very good job by transforming this play into a little earlier, ironically enough. Most times people do updates of uh, plays, but uh, this one seems to be earlier. So uh, I saw this last night, and I am still thinking about it right this moment. Uh, I loved this show so much. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, the the as Peter pointed out, the writing is just wonderful. It's a drama and it's hysterical at the same time, and the commitment that those women showed on stage and it didn't occur to me until I walked out of the theater. Uh, and in fact, it probably didn't. Yeah, I was thinking probably when I was walking back to the train. Uh, to the subway was that um, was that this was a show 
of black women. That was it. Mm. There was no men. There was no white people. There was no... And this goes to show you that uh, that uh, there is an incredible uh, wealth of of talent out there that can bring stuff alive to us, and that uh, uh, that so many people are uh, women and and uh, people of color are so tremendously underrepresented on our stages. Uh, I really had a tremendous time at this. And and doing some research after the show, I try not to do research before a show because I want to be fresh into it. But doing the the research after the show, um, I didn't realize that this had been done a bunch of other places and it was a commission and that had such a history because normally I would think the New York Theater Workshop is about original works, but... uh, but we did. Uh, we have this here, and if you can, it's been extended to August nineteenth. There's not a lot of time left, and it's a very small theater. But get down and see it if you can. I really, I, I can't imagine. I, I wish that there was a longer life, and that this, this would move somewhere else. All right. Uh, finally, this morning, uh, I'm very late to the game to see Mary Page Marlowe at the Second Stage Theater in the in the Kaiser. We have to start really. Uh, being very clear about which second stage theater that we're seeing because uh, they have a number of them now. Um, And uh, I just wanted to say that uh, second stage is really uh, doing some, some great producing. Uh, We've already talked uh, on this, on this podcast. Jan Simpson did a great review of Mary Page Marlowe a few weeks back. uh, And Tracy Letts's work is, is really wonderful uh and amazing lila nugabauer is uh directs this uh show and uh uh blair brown and the whole cast there is really showing us these uh mary page at six different points in her life or six different actresses that play mary page marlowe and how she gets from one point in her life to the other and it's not always in sequence so it it fills in the backstory as you progress through the show. It was intensely interesting to me, and I really loved it as well. And if you can get a chance to see that, that's also playing through August 19th. So that wraps it up for our reviews this morning. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time you have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you're going to be able to find Broadway Radio's shows. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at broadwayradio.com in the show notes, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah. What do these Tony-winning musicals all have in common? Hamilton, In the Heights, Rent, Sunset Boulevard, Jerome Robbins Broadway, The Phantom of the Opera, Les Miserables, Cats, Avita, Sweeney Todd, Ain't Misbehaving, and Two Gentlemen of Verona. The answer was, in their original issues, all were either two record sets or two CD sets. They didn't just get one. Uh, the only person to get it was Donald Tessioni. Um, I hope that we'll all do better this week. And the question this week is, a performer who hasn't been on Broadway for decades is about to return to the same theater 
where he or she, let's keep it vague, received the first and only reviewed Broadway appearance that he or she got as a performer. What's the name of the person I am looking for? Okay. If you have an answer to that, uh, email us at triviabroadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.